Switch it up, Jenny. 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 Switch, switch, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Yes, switch it up. Switch it up, Jenny. Hi all, this is Switch It Up Jenny and we continue talking with Marjan, digital artist who came to New York in late 70s, escaping Iranian revolution. It's time to learn more about digital art. Listen to Marjan and use your imagination. I want you to tell people who are listening to this podcast right now, who probably don't have any background in arts and especially in digital painting, what is this digital painting? And please bear in mind that we don't have a visual with that? Without so, a visual, okay. Yeah. Can you just describe it as much as possible? Okay, well, let me just talk a little bit about my, uh, you know, my process. I, I work with the computer, and I've been working with the computer since the 1980s to create art. So uh, I, have, I have a very long history with it, and my, I work primarily with 3D modeling and rendering. So what I do is I model or sculpt, if you may, my own figures and worlds, and I then sort of paint <laughs> this world, and then I either take a still image of it as a, you know, as a as a as a photograph of a virtual world, if you may, uh, which then becomes a large print or a small print, which I exhibit as a still uh, digital painting. Or sometimes I do an animation so that uh, it's an animated painting. Mm -hmm. And other times I'll do like interactive pieces or video game type pieces. And also recently I did an avatared piece in which the audience moves the figures in my paintings by with their physical movement. So uh, I am uh, the one who just came to your exhibition and I see the, the, the painting on the wall. And do I need to touch something or do I... I have, I have paintings that have embedded touch screens in them. So when you actually touch them, um, you get messages, and the, the screens are animated, and they have animated figures, that, and when you touch, they respond to you. So I do have some pieces that are interactive, but I also have pieces that are still prints, nothing moves, and it's just a pictorial composition, the same as a pictorial composition in any painting, whether it's with acrylic or uh, uh, you know, oil paint. Once again, it's the idea of a constructed image, you know, and in this instance, the image has no basis in reality, so it's not like a photograph or a photo collage or a photo illustration, but rather an image that first existed in my mind, and then secondly, as a virtual environment you know, in the computer um, that I then output. And so, like the way I approach the premise of uh, digital painting is I, I don't deal with painting as in, oh, it has to be oil paint or acrylic. I think much of the 20th century was about uh, dismissing this idea that painting had to be a very particular uh, medium. You know, so, so much of the, I mean, you had everything from image transfer techniques, uh, like Rauschenberg's work with you know, mixed media glued to it, and Warhol and his silk screen. So, the, so much of the 20th century dialogue of painting was about expanding what the form could be. So for me, the logical thing in the 21st century is to expand it further with virtual reality and the technologies of virtual reality. 
Can we talk about uh, the the digital painting uh, before margin and after margin? So <laughs> you, you said <laughs> no, but it's yeah. true that you were one of the pioneers of mm -hmm. uh, yeah. uh, this style. So so how was it before you, and what exactly was your? Well, uh, you know, it's interesting because I like I one of the first uh, one of the first computer animation pieces that I did that was. That wasn't really like a narrative animation with a beginning, a middle, and an end, but a series of compositions. It was actually in 1989, and it was called PMS. And, and it was all about, uh, you know, uh, this sort of expressionistic, almost punk visuals around, uh, around women and their bodies. Now, the reason that I bring this up is because I'm trying to sort of juxtapose what computer art in the 1980s was like computer art in the 1980s was you know was uh you know different color triangles <laughs> that were programmed to like change color yeah. it was very geometric it was very conceptual it was very minimalist it was done primarily by men it was all programmed and here i was with images of women and menstruation and pfs <laughs> and that's why i bring it up because i'm trying to sort of contextualize what it was like when i was doing my work in the 80s everybody was like this you know, was, was doing the exact opposite. It very emotionally restrained conceptual stuff. And I was like doing this sort of like primal screen in digital paint. So you basically had your, uh, your women fight here in the <laughs> digital space. Yeah, and, and you know, it's on, on some levels I've continued. I still do very, very expressionistic work. I do work a lot of my own personal uh, feelings into it. And you know, I, I get, You know, I mean, I, I do a lot of shows, but and this is the interesting part is I, I, I get a lot of my pieces mixed from shows because the political content, the sexual content, you know, in other words, I still produce a lot of work that, you know, is, is hard to show in public art spaces. I also want to talk about this uh, the political aspect mm -hmm. of your art. So you have this um, signature digital bodies. Mm -hmm that are kind of like a giants. You see a lot of fire mm -hmm. or fighting. So first of all, this is not male or, or, or female. Some of them are. Some, some of, of them, them are, are male, some of them are female. So you, um, you have a gender. I do, okay. I do deal with gender. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, um, The, the males are like David and Goliath, Rashad and Iran. And, and like the way I work with my digital bodies is that I work with, sometimes my digital bodies are uh, made out of machined and cubic parts. And that, that's really about the transference of our identities to digital substrata, to digital space. So as we uh, shift more and more of our lives to digital space, we quantify ourselves into... Um, almost geometric shapes. I mean, you have to think about what are we as data online, but we're really quantified and defined by data sets. And, and that's almost like taking the fluid organic shape of a human and turning it into a bunch of geometric shapes. A similar thing is happening to our personalities, to our feelings, to our ideas. In other words, we assume that the way we are in digital space is, is exactly as we are in physical space, and it's not. 
because you know conversations in digital space are very different. You know, there's delays, or if you're texting, you have a completely different way of communicating than when you're speaking face to face, or if you're hanging out on social media and looking at your news uh, newsfeed and Facebook, you know, that's not the same thing as socializing in a party. You know, so while we are transferring these activities to the digital, they're changing when they enter the digital space. And we are changing as we enter the digital space. So a lot of my figures who are made out of these geometric parts are how the human figure as a metaphor changes from this organic, organic sort of fluid contiguous shape to something that's compartmentalized, broken up into parts. It has organic elements, it has energy, it has you know cubic things. So a lot of my work and my style of figuration is about that, how we are changing, how the digital is changing us and how we are changing the digital. It's almost like a feedback loop. I mean, you know, we, we inform the technology, but the, but the technology in turn then comes back haptically. It's almost like forced feedback and changes us. And so my figures are really trying to capture this new humanity that we're becoming, where part of us is, yes, you recognize the skeletal structure of human, but it's not the contiguous, uh, uh, you know, it's not the contiguous form of flesh, you know. It's all disjointed and it's all aggregated out of different parts and different qualities. Again, you have a lot of fighting fire, even killings, because they're... they're well, they're, they're... it's, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the interesting part of it is, and I always joke and say, you know, if you look at Persian miniatures, there's always fire. <laughs> so okay. it's a very much a big part of, like, the aesthetics of my culture. And uh, there's always fire in terms of, you know, there's, like, characters who have, uh, uh, you know, mystical or spiritual characters who always have their sort of fire following them everywhere. Fire sometimes can indicate the soul or the spirit uh, that, that coexists alongside the material and corporeal aspects of a person. So fire permeates the uh, art of my culture, by the way. But fire to me, the explosions that I used, was really about the aspects of our uh, media, which, you know, Hollywood special effects and of course video games. And to me, that's such a big part of uh, the visuals of the mediascape and the visuals of our world today, that it was like, natural to sort of bring them into my compositions. But I also think that it had to do with the fact that so much of the, 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 the grand narratives of our time are about war and conflict and destruction. And so much of the technology is also about the weapons of, of, of uh, you know, the modern weapons and the destruction that they cause. And um, so the flames for me are very much about, you know, the flames in our world the explosions in our world, and, uh, and the, also the flames and the explosions in our media. There is this description on your website mm -hmm. that uh, your art um, represents the cataclysmic nature of our times and humanity. Yeah. I, I think we are living through one of those eras, and like the Chinese have the curse of, you know, may you live through interesting times. I think we are living through... Uh, truly cataclysmic times. And I think that we're at the brink of uh, mass extinctions of a kind that, you know, we haven't seen since the dinosaurs went extinct, you know. Um, we're looking at potential for nuclear war that could be devastating on a level that none of us can even conceptualize. 
So yes, we are living through this really difficult time, and everybody has this sense of you know there's a there's a point at which climate change is going to get so bad that we're all going to be looking back at the good times and like how we could have stopped it and we didn't. And I think everybody knows we're living through one of those times where in about 20 years things could be really really bad. So what do you want to say by that? Do you want to um, attract attention to this for 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 some kind of action? Do you want people to start thinking about it, or do you want to say that okay, it's gonna uh, the world gonna be destroyed, and then we will have a new world? Well, you know, I don't I I don't tell people what to do. I don't think mm-hmm. artists do that. I think what artists do is we mine the collective unconscious of our time. <laughs> yeah, we we mine, we are like the subconscious of the world. Like you have the culture at large, you know, movies and story, movies and books and, you know, whatever is popular on the internet. You think of that as the conscious mind of, of society. And then artists are kind of like the subconscious, you know, what's underneath the culture. And 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 I think I tap into that, and I work with it, and I try not to edit it. I don't think this my attempt is to tell people what to do with it, but I think that's what artists historically have always done. They've tapped into the zeitgeist of their time, or the subconscious of their time, or they work with the essence of their time. And and I think that's what I do. I'm working with the essence of our time, but I don't necessarily believe it's because I have. A particular ideology to sell anybody or to even advise in this situation, um, and I don't think artists should do that. I think artists just need to work with that essence of their time and trust that that this this age-old process works. That somehow, if we work with it, we open a dialogue, and we open a dialogue that maybe popular culture can't. It's a deeper dialogue. It's one that requires that you think outside the box. It's one that deals with elements of the sublime and the transcendent, and and I think that there's so little of that kind of discourse in our world that it puts it puts even greater pressure on artists to do that because so little in our world is doing that. You mentioned um, embedded messages. That embedded, you, yeah. Mm-hmm. You, you have in your paintings. What are they? What is that? Well, the embedded messages that that, that I the writing that I put in my pieces. A lot of it is, uh, you know, a lot of it is like social media style text, you know, where, and literally there were some of my pieces actually have posts that appeared on my Twitter or, you know, Facebook that day. Uh, some of it is poetry, some of it is autobiographical writing, and some of it is essay. And 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 the reason that I started to put those in is because text is so much a part of our lives. You know, it's like I'm walking around, I'm looking at a screen full of text. I mean, it's no longer like, oh, here's nature and here's You know, yeah. I mean, it's like half my view is text. You know? So it just seemed logical to put the text in. That's why when I first started putting the text in was around 2011, and in some of my pieces I started to just put in all this writing. And so the messages are really the way text is a part of our experience of reality and what we're looking at in 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 media and also in reality. And the way the text is sort of. Like you, even now when you're walking down the street, sometimes you see signs, and you'll see four signs, and it forms a sentence that has some kind of meaning and significance for you. So, to me, there's a whole, t- there's a, there's a type of narrative that is happening as a result of the ubiquity of text and everything that we deal with, that is different than uh, the traditional narrative text in writing. 
And so for me, it was like bringing in text as first an artistic and visual element, but then also as a conceptual element. And letting the pieces have the sort of poetic visual narrative that each piece has, and then it has the sort of embedded textual uh, narrative, and, and to approach both in a poetic way. So you also have uh, some poems? Yes, there's poems, yeah. There's poems. What, what in, kind of poems? The, the poems that I write, and uh, they're, they're in my print pieces and my interactive pieces and also animations. And sometimes as I'm writing, it just becomes like poetry, so I go with the poetry. Um, and sometimes, it, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just social media style text, and and sometimes it's like you know, actual poetry. And and I go back and forth. And but I don't usually, I don't usually have an idea of which it'll be. I sort of take a stream of consciousness approach, and 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 I pro, and, and I work with it very spontaneously. So whatever comes up, I go with it. What I also want to talk about uh, a little bit. So you um, you. You teach in mm -hmm. the, uh, somewhere in the institute? I teach at the Media Arts Department at the Brooklyn campus of Long Island University. Yes, and I remember last time when we met, you mentioned something that really stuck in my head, that you told your students that your master thesis should be a, a, a start um, for your career. Yes. This is something that not every uh, professor tells in the, <laughs> in the universities. No, I tell yeah. you. And uh, I think it's, you're absolutely right. It's something that should represent you. It should launch your career as a scholar or as an artist, yes. Yes, because that's how you use your time efficiently, first of all. And secondly, you uh, use the knowledge that you gained in something that is meaningful for mm -hmm. you. You know, we're, we're, we're talk, it goes back to the cataclysmic nature of our times. We're in this very, very sort of straight, strange transitional period. You know, we're, we're sort of seeing the end of the humanities in education, um, which is not, I, and I'm not a fan of it per se, but I do recognize that it's, it's, it's time for it to change. And, and uh, um, you know, and, and there's also this sort of intrusion of what I call corporatism into education, which can also be catastrophic because we don't want to lose uh, the uh, independence, the intellectual independence of academia. We also don't want to lose its objectivity or its ability to uh, act, uh, its ability to, to continue to act as the conscience of society, as the soul of society, as the guidance and wisdom of society, and also as its uh, reservoir of information and knowledge and art and culture and science, etc. Um, so, you know, education is, you know, I think you, you, we also have to seriously deal with the fact that we now have more college graduates than ever before. I mean, people have to understand that, you know, 30 years ago, you didn't have this many people with MFAs. You know, 30 years ago, you didn't have this many people with MBAs. And now you do. So um, what, when you have this many people with advanced education, you have to seriously deal with the fact that a piece of paper that says you have an MBA or an MFA no longer carries the same weight that it used to 30 years ago. I think that's something else we have to deal with, that this is no longer as unique or special, if you may, a thing <laughs> that it used to be. This is so true. Yeah, I mean, you know, 30 years ago, how many artists had MFAs? Very few. You know, some didn't even have college degrees, you know? And now it's sort of like everybody has to have an MFA. So a lot has changed in our world, and when you have 
an MFA now can very much be like a bachelor's degree. It doesn't automatically open doors as a piece of paper that says, yes, you studied for this long. So you have to really, um, and also I think something else that has happened is, you know, when I was, when I moved to New York in the 1980s, I mean, you know, we work like three days a week <laughs> tops or two days a week, or sometimes we'd work two weeks a month and then the rest of the time we just, the rents were cheap and, you know, everything was cheap back then. I think my rent was like $250 a month, which was, which I could make in a weekend of bartending, you know, as yeah. when I was in my early 20s. It was like, you know, and Not I never case. had to work that hard. Anymore. But, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have all, the, we didn't have iPhones, we didn't have credit, credit cards, we didn't have any of those things, you know, so we had really low overhead, <laughs> monthly overhead, and we spent all our time just making art and hanging out in art spaces and, um, you know, and nowadays it's like a lot harder. I was thinking that, you know, nowadays almost young people need an MFA because it's like an opportunity for them to make and show art, you know. Yeah. Um, because if you come to New York, it's like, uh, it's not the, the scene that existed in the 1980s with tons of clubs and bars that, you know, allowed you to make art and do performances and play. You really don't have that sort of thing anymore. You know. Well, you have, I guess, but you have to pay for it. You have to know people. How how it works? Like well, it's it's like really, it's most of the places that exist in New York City. Let's like let's take a look at all the clubs in in Manhattan. Very few of them show art. Whereas in the '80s, most of the nightclubs had art area, danceateria. They had art in, elaborate art installations. So artists were hired and given, you know, a venue to create outrageous, you know art installations. You look at the Pyramid Club, Club 57, performance art was born in those clubs. And it's like at any given night of the week, you could see Karen Finley, John Kelly, a lot of the big art, uh, performance artists at that time. Um, but like if you were to go to the bars and clubs in the Lower East Side right now, I'm not suggesting you won't have bands, <laughs> but it's not the same thing. You're not going to have experimental music. You're not going to have you know, your average nightclub in the East Village in the 1980s, there were paintings on the wall, there was a crazy installation in the corner of the club or the bar, and then the program that night was a performance art piece, experimental band, <laughs> you know, and, you know, some punk band. And then there would be, you know, some surprise poetry reading at the end of it, let's say. This, was, this, was, this is what you would have in a single night. In, an, in your average club in the East Village. And that's not the case. If you go to the Lower East Side now, it's just like a couple of bands that are playing. There's not a whole lot of experimental anything. There's no poetry reading. There's no you know, performance art. There's no installation in the corner. So it's a very different kind of thing. Why is that? It's not that like we have less uh, uh, artistic and talented people right now. I'm sure. Well, the, the culture has changed. I mean, a lot of the bars are... A lot of the bars, they are there to make a lot of money. I mean, they, they have to pay astronomical rents and they have to charge a lot of money for the drinks. And, you know, the avant-garde, I mean, like, why did the avant-garde go to Berlin in the last 20 years? Because life was cheap there, you know. You, it's very hard to have a viable avant-garde when, you know, when you live in a, in a city that's run for the sole purpose of making as much money as possible. Yeah, you know, it's like really hard. Okay, but this isn't about Manhattan, but 
what if we go like um, Brooklyn is considered as expensive too now. <laughs> yes, because because of artists actually, exactly, because yeah. uh, there was a, a group of um, artistic people who came when Brooklyn wasn't like it is right now, and then they built something, and then it became popular, and people started moving here. Yeah, but you know, sometimes I think it's also that the culturally things have changed. You know, I. I was taking my nephew, my niece, and her 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 friend, both college freshmen. To uh, we were driving upstate, and we were in the car, so we were like, "Oh, let, let, let's let's let Marjan, let let's let Mar Auntie Marjan play, and take charge of the MP3 player." And so I decided to play some old uh, punk chick music for them. So I played Polystyrene. I played, you know. Uh, the Pretenders. I played. I tried not to play like Blondie and Joan Jack because they already knew that. Because I was, I was, I was going with things that I thought they would know. And then I started playing P.J. Harvey. And you know what? They hated it. You know, to them, it sounded like horrible music. But and but and it was like this moment that I realized this is a different generation. They like melody. They like pretty things. They like you know. They, in other words, we were a different. Uh, we were a different world. We had a capacity and an appreciation for the radical, the extreme, and the dark and the crazy that this particular generation doesn't. But you know what? If you look at the history of 20th century, the whole 20th century wasn't Paris in the 30s. That was just one moment. What followed it, Paris became super conservative. <laughs> you know, Paris didn't stay Paris of the 1930s. It changed. It became very conservative. And if you were to look at New York in the 80s, it's the same thing. It was a particular moment. Not every generation, uh, not every generation gets that radical. And, and maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a good it's thing. It's just different. It's different. And you, you, if everything was radical all the time, then radicalism would lose its radicalism. So it's, it's right now, I think, we have a generation who is not very radical. They're radical in a quiet way. They're looking for a different way of, uh, maybe it's because, you know, I'll tell you what the difference was. My generation, you know, we grew up with, you know, my mother could afford to stay home. You know, the, 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 our dads had steady jobs. <laughs> they knew they, they had the job until they retired. We didn't grow up with this constant anxiety that our parents are terrified they're gonna lose their jobs. Uh, we believe that, oh, I can do whatever I want, and eventually I'll get a job, and you know, I'll have a steady paycheck and benefits and health insurance and until I retire. No, but seriously, that's what we grew up with. I know it's so thing. we could afford to be like crazy and say, to hell with all of this, and we want to be rebels, and we want to live in the Lower East Side and, you know, in some hellhole squat. <laughs> like, but the young people today are very different because they grew up with this terror of how am I going to survive in this world. So their path is different than ours because they grew up with a lot more anxiety than we did. They also have a lot more anxiety looking forward into the future because of all the, the, the issues that we talked about, that all the, all the threats to our civilization really. That's very important that you say that because, especially because you are an artist and you're a person who sees things that probably not everybody sees. That's why I want you, like in the end of our conversation, say something um, like a, a message to, to young people and specifically maybe young artists today. What do you think can help them to, to succeed nowadays? Well, I mean, succeeding today is, a, is, a, is, a, is very different than it was 
you know, when I, when I started out. I, I think today, I think young artists are oftentimes enough, uh, they're so pushed to just deliver packaged art fast, you know, that sometimes they don't get a chance to develop their own voice. Um, I've had a chance to make art for three decades now, you know? That's a miracle. I've been living in New York City for 30 years, and I can tell you, not everybody who's an artist in their 20s, who gets shows, who gets press, who gets, oh, they're like, it continues being an artist. And I think that's what people have to realize. A lot of the, a lot of the people that you see, young people who are making a name for themselves, 20 years from now, they may not be artists anymore. So when you talk to me about success as an artist, Like, what does success as an artist mean? That you make it really, really big? Or that you continue to grow and evolve a body of work consistently over the course of your life that you can be proud of? Which one are you asking? Well, the thing is that uh, this question is already kind of an answer to my question. Yeah. See, because I feel like I was, I'm lucky because I've been able to do that. I've been able to, to evolve a body of work for 30 years. I think that's a great. If I can do it for another 10 years, I'll be screaming thank you. If I can do it for another 30 or 40 years, I'll be screaming thank you even louder. So for me, success is, can I make a splash this year or this decade? But... It's really about that journey and all the different bodies of art that come out of it, all the different bodies of work that come out of it, and the meaning and the purpose as an artist. And, and that, to me, is a different experience than that bigger splash. So success for me is to have the journey of an artist as a life. That's a beautiful ending. And it made me think what success means to me. I'm going to continue figuring that out, and I see you next time. It was Switch It Up Jenny. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.